The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Lord, I ask for your help. I just think about all the people who are grieving uh, lost ones or grieving their own struggles. And as we sing those songs about our hope that transcends this world and longs for the day of your arrival. Even so, come, Lord. It's in Christ that we have such a hope. We ask for strength in this time to to see the hope of the gospel in your scriptures this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oh boy, starting out like this. How am I going to make it? Thank you for leading us into the presence of God through singing. Oh, okay. Good morning. On a scale of one to ten, this kind of opening analogy sounds a little trivia now, trivial now. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, and you uh, are thinking a ten is a I'm doing great, a one not so great, your confidence, your assurance that your salvation is authentic, that you know you're the real deal. In Christ, uh, that's where John is in this book. He's saying, "Hey, I want you to know that you know that you know that your salvation is authentic." Um, and all throughout the series, I'm trying to be real careful not to say that your faith is authentic, because our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Christ. And what John is doing is talking to a group of people who are struggling struggling badly because some people within the church, just imagine this is the church he's writing to, some people within the church have have risen up and said, man, we found something more than this than what we have been taught from the apostles. We've had a, 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 an extra anointing or experience in the Holy Spirit that has caused them to, to leave the traditional teachings of the faith and the necessity of faith in Christ. And so they've highlighted the experiential side of the faith, which is very real, but they've highlighted the experience to the neglect of the objective truth of the gospel. And so he's saying, hey, thankfully, praise God, the church overcame and those who uh, were rising up and saying these different things have moved on. And so the people left that he's writing to have remained firm in their faith. and, And he's saying, you know, I want you to know that you know. I want you to be strong. I want to strengthen you. And last week we saw uh, three, uh, three characteristics or three qualities of authenticity. And it's faith in Christ, faith in, the, in Jesus Christ. It's our uh, brotherly love for one another. What is the third one? I've only looked at it a hundred million times. If y'all don't know, then this is a test of you and you're not listening well. <laughs> It's not about me, it's about you. Uh, Faith in the gospel, brotherly love, and obedience, growing holiness. Some of you, I don't know what you said, but you said something, that's good. Uh, Growing holiness, growing love, and faith. 
in Jesus Christ. And so today he's kind of zeroing in on the objective truth claims of the gospel. And he's saying, listen, there's, there is a subjective side, but make sure you don't tinker with or mess with or leave behind the objective truth. And so I want you to know where this, what the truth is, where it came from, and why it is so significant. And so we're going to look at three questions today. First of all, what is the gospel? Second of all, where did we get this gospel? How did we get this gospel? And then finally, why do we proclaim this gospel? Or why is it such a big deal? Why does everything we do center on this gospel message? And so that's what Paul's doing today. I don't know where you are on that scale of 1 to 10 about assurance that your salvation is authentic. But my prayer is that through this time in the Word today, that you will lock down, the, the, that you will have confidence in the objective truth claims of the gospel. That you will be certain that this message is the truth. As we begin this series, that's where John starts in the prologue. And so, in the prologue of the book, it's actually quite strange. As we begin to look at what is the gospel... Look at the structure of these verses. It's very unusual. He, you know, normally in English, we say subject, verb, object, right? John threw the ball. Subject, verb, object. We don't... In Greek, the word order can be messed with, though, more common to emphasize, for instance, the ball John threw. And so the object is put up front. And that's what he's doing, And but he does it in such a strange way. The object is described with these four relative clauses, just what we have, well, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at and touched. This is what we proclaim. And so he's emphasizing the nature of the proclamation, the nature of the message. What is it? How did we get it? How is it reliable? Is it true? And so he wants to emphasize that with us today. And so what is the gospel message? He doesn't get to the verb we proclaim until verse 3. And so he holds it, he holds it, he interrupts himself, and then he restarts where he was. And then finally he says, that's what we're proclaiming. And so what are we proclaiming? What are we banking our eternity on? What what is the gospel? And so that's what we look at beginning in uh, verse 1 and following, and what will, let me just read it again. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Let's stop right there. Word of life. So this gospel, he says, is a word of life. It is a word. It is a message. It is a revelation It is communication of a message of life, the word of life. So it's a word concerning life, but it also is the means of obtaining that life. It's the word of life. But then he goes on, and this life was manifested or revealed, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you eternal life. So he says the gospel message is a message about Life, and it's a message about eternal life. Now, this phrase at the very beginning of his text where he says, what was from the beginning, now he's going to give us another aspect of this message of life, this message of eternal life. He says it was from the beginning. Now, when you hear that, if you've read the Bible, you might 
be thinking of some other verses, especially by the same author, John, who wrote another book, which we, not to confuse, but which we also called a gospel. So the gospel of John, the fourth book of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, was written by the same author, and it begins in a very similar way. Turn to John chapter 1 in your gospel. John chapter 1, the gospel of John, verse 1, he says... And listen to the similarities. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He, now he noticed this Word that was with God, that is the same essence of God that John can say is God. This Word is now a He. It's a being. He was in the beginning with God. In fact, all things came into being through Him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And so he has the same phrases. In 1 John, he says, what we proclaim is the word of life, word of eternal life. And then his gospel, John, he says that word of life was with God and was God for all eternity. And as you read that, you have to start saying, okay, so this message is a message about life, about eternal life, and it provides eternal life to those who adhere to it. And that is the life that was always in existence. The life of God, the being of God, the source of all life, which has this perspective change. And so it lifts us up out of our our private little lives and out of our families and out of our jobs and our history and our little life that began here and we think will end about here. And it says, wait a minute, this life that we're talking about and proclaiming has existed for all eternity. It's the pre-existence of the eternal God, the eternal life of God, the God who existed in three persons and Perfect, loving, joyful fellowship. All terms in this passage. Fellowship, joy. God existed in the perfect, loving fellowship with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Forever. Eternally. Invisible. Intangible. This life, eternal joy has always existed. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 16 that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. So the fullness of joy has existed eternally in loving fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And life is, that's the very essence of life. That's what we all want, isn't it? That's what the world is longing for. We were created to want that joy, that essence of happiness, that eternal satisfaction and joy. God put that there. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be reconciled to his joy. God wants you to have fellowship with his Joy. God wants you to have His life. You see, life eternal. We think we think the gospel is about eternal life. That's not something sitting out there on a table that God said, "Here, I want that for you. Go get it." God says, "I am life. 
I am the fullness of joy. I am eternal. I have eternally existed, God says. I will eternally exist in eternal fullness of joy and fellowship of love in and among myself. In fact, we see in Genesis 1 this same phrase, the beginning of your Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. In the beginning, God was created? No. In the beginning, God created in, be- in the beginning of history, of time and space on earth, that began when this eternal life being source of the fullness of joy spoke a word. And through the power of his word, he created the heavens and the earth. He created this stage and then he spoke life into humanity. Why did he do that? So that they might have fellowship with him. With his eternal life and fullness of joy. Life and joy is found in him. Fellowship means to have sharing of common with. To have participation with. Fellowship with God is life eternal. It is joy. It is abundant life. This is what the message of the gospel is all about. How to be reconciled with God with fullness of joy that lasts forever. That is massive. And he says, that is what we all long for, what we all want. And so John begins his gospel, I mean his letter, the first John, with this prologue about this message of eternal fullness of joy that has been in God forever, took on flesh. And so why do we need to be reconciled to that joy? Because in Genesis 3, we know what happened. God created humanity in fellowship with him. And he said, all you have to do is stay here with me. And I am your joy. I am your greatest good. I am what you need in life. I exist eternally as long as you're with me and in me in fellowship, participation, in communion with me. You exist in the fullness of joy forever and ever. But all of us did the same thing. We all said, I think I got a better idea. And we separated ourselves in rebellion from him and his joy and his fellowship. It's a tragic fall of humanity called sin. But God in his grace and his mercy put together a, a plan to say, I, not that it wasn't, he knew it from the beginning, but he began to offer reconciliation. How we can be restored to him, to his joy and his Happiness and his fellowship and his life, abundant life forever and ever. And the cleanest expression of this is in 1 Peter 3.18. And notice how he words this gospel message. It, it talks about coming to God, being restored and reconciled to God. In 1 Peter 3.18, Christ, Jesus Christ, also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The problem is being away from God. The solution is being brought back to God. And that's what Jesus did. The righteous man, God, 
the God-man, took on flesh, died on the cross, and took the penalty and the wrath and the condemnation that is justly deserved by those who rebel against God. And God said, I'll take it upon myself for you. And so he came, he died on the cross, he was buried to take the sins of our rebellion, and then he rose again on the third day, proving he's the eternal one who just temporarily took on flesh for us. So that we could have reconciliation, be brought back to him, fellowship to him. This is the gospel message. The righteous God-man died, was buried and rose again, so that the unrighteous might be brought back to God, who is eternal life and the fullness of joy. That's our gospel message. There is no other good news. There is no other gospel. There is no other option. You can't say, well, that sounds good. I'll try a little of that and I'll try a little of this. No, it's either true or it's insanity. That word that John talks about in John 1, 1, John 1, 14 says, that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. The glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This begins the transition from what is the gospel to how did we get this gospel? There's so many answers to these questions. We could, I just was like all week, Kevin Wilson was like, how's it going? It's like terrible. He's like, what's wrong? I was like, it's just, how do you put your hands around these concepts? And I mean, every one of these is just so much. How did we get the gospel? Well, first of all, we got the gospel because God graciously revealed it to us. God brought it to us. We don't go and climb some ladder of higher achievement or spiritual experience to, to save ourselves. Like I said last week, we don't ascend to God. God graciously, mercifully condescended to us. To say, here, I'm going to reveal to you how you can be reconciled to me. In his love, he he wants us to come back and have fellowship. He loves to restore his people to himself, to his joy, to his eternal life being and life source. But more so, God spoke history in Hebrews. We learn God... After he spoke long ago to the fathers, this is talking about everything we read about in the Old Testament, through, to his fathers, through the prophets, and many portions in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus finishes the word. Jesus is the final and complete message to us of how to be restored. He is the word of life. And so how did we get this gospel message? I was, I was a child praying in my bedroom with my mother. How did I get the gospel? My mom shared the gospel with me. How did she get the gospel? Someone in her family shared the gospel with her. Where did this gospel come from? Where did we get this? Why are we? Is it just because I grew up in a Christian home? Is it just because I'm in a Christian culture around here? Where did this come from? He begins by assuring us this Message, this objective truth in contrast to a merely subjective experience that can't be seen or touched or heard. You you just have to believe them. He says, no, this message came from firsthand eyewitnesses of people who heard him, who saw him, and touched him, who examined him. He says, this goes all the way back to the apostles. 
John first says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes. This is where the gospel came from. It did not come in a vacuum. It came from people who said, we heard him. We saw him. Now, this is referring to the mere firsthand eyewitness account. Very practical. Hearing, seeing with the senses. At a moment in time in history... A real person walked this earth. His name was Jesus. He had a hometown that people knew him. They went and saw him. They saw him grow up. They saw his actions. They heard his teaching. When they, he started his public ministry, they saw his baptism. They saw something happen that the Bible explains was the Holy Ghost descending upon him to verify, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, God said at his baptism. They heard that. They heard him teach with unseen authority. No one had experienced such authoritative teaching before. You know the truth when you hear it. And they heard it. They heard him claim to be the Messiah. They heard him say, all of your Bible speaks about me. I am the fulfillment of your scriptures, the sacred writings which God handed down to you. They heard him say that. They heard him say, I can give... Forgiveness of sins. They heard his claims. They were forced to deal with them. What do you do when someone walks in here and says these kind of things? You don't just go, okay, let me tell my kids. You say, what is this dude talking about? And we have a meeting. We get a church meeting because I get emails. And we sit down and go, okay, this dude's claiming to be God. He's claiming to offer forgiveness. He's claiming to be the one that this word talks about. We either tell him he's crazy or we're all in. And that's what happened. They heard his claims. They heard everything. And they saw him, it says. They saw him with their eyes. What did they see? They saw him... With skin, with eyebrows and eyelashes, probably didn't bald. Right, Mickey? You know what I'm saying? He's Jesus. But he had hair, he had a personality, he had a family, and they saw him. Passionate and merciful to people. I watched, we went to see Ben-Hur last night, that movie. I highly recommend it. Those of us who grew up going, I know I'm supposed to know what this is. I had no idea what Ben-Hur was. It's a great movie. It's about a guy uh, uh, that was living at the same time as Jesus, and they just kind of bring Jesus in the middle of the movie here and there. But it's kind of what was going on outside at the time. Very good. But it's very powerful to see images, even if they're just actors, just Images of Jesus and images of of forgiveness and compassion, of of reaching down to someone who's hurt and someone's throwing stones and laying on top of them and taking the, the stones for yourself and saying, stop, stop, stop. It's the kind of stuff Jesus did. He bled. They saw the crown of thorns on his head. They saw the blood coming down and stinging his eyes and they saw it in his mouth and, and they saw him thirsty. They saw him hurting. They saw when he lost a beloved, they saw him cry. They saw him love. They saw him heal people who were born, a man born blind. 
And they said, nobody does this. Nobody. They said, something's wrong. Either he hasn't been blind or this is all phony because nobody heals someone born blind. He did it. They saw it. People born crippled. He touched them and they walked. People messed up in chains and throwing themselves in the fire because they're riddled with demonic possession. And Jesus walks up and heals them and casts them into a herd of pigs. And they saw it. It's just crazy stuff going on. And they heard it and they saw it. Then they didn't just see it with their eyes. They didn't just hear it with their ears. They got it. They grasped it. That's what he says in the next verse. We have looked at and touched with our hands. That that phrasing is very carefully phrased. We have looked at and touched with our hands. Even the tensing of the verbs and all this, I won't bore you with, but here's, here's the idea that's going on. It says, we heard him and we heard him our whole life. And we saw him with an abiding seeing. We, we saw him our whole life. But then we examined him carefully. It says, the words used there are like a blind man groveling to see and touching and feeling and, and feeling every little... And then coming to that point where they're like, ah, I know who this is. I, I, I looked at and I touched. I examined carefully. I scrutinized. And then the tense of the verb is then that came that decisive moment. I know who this is. What do you think that scene is describing? Does a, does a scene in the Bible come to mind that John wrote about? I, I went straight to it. I was like, oh, I know what he's talking about. John 20, 26 through 29 in his gospel. Jesus had been crucified. He'd been laid in the tomb. And they're all huddled up in a room. And it says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas with them. We think Thomas is the only one that was doubting. Really? I don't think Thomas is the only one that was doubting. I think John just like, let's talk about Thomas. <laughs> Thomas is in the room. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, and they heard it, peace be with you. And don't you know they... I know that voice. Then he said to Thomas, touch me. Reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here with your hand. Put it onto my side where the spear went. And do not be unbelieving. Examine me like a blind man groveling to know, who is this really? Hear, see, touch, examine, feel, do what it takes, but come to that point where you go, okay, I know who this is. Thomas answered and he said, my Lord and my God. 
And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. That's us. John heard it all. John saw it all. John saw him die on the cross and say, forgive him, Father, forgive him. And he's just taking it in. But from the dead? And you know they're in that room going, so wait, what? Wait, so is he, he's dead? What, what does he say? What's going to happen? What are we, what? And then he shows up. And they touch and they feel and they eat fish together and they talk and they laugh and they cry and they share stories and they leave there praising God. He's alive. He's the eternal life that took on flesh for a moment to say, I want you to know me. It says, this is what John and the other apostles testified and proclaimed. That's two different concepts. To testify is to be a witness about a firsthand experience. I promise I'll tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. I examined him. He is alive. And he told me, I proclaim to believe in the name of Jesus and you will be saved. The testimony has the authority from experience. The proclamation has authority from the commissioning where Jesus said, go make disciples. Tell them what you saw. Tell them what you've experienced. Tell them so they can know and have eternal life. So John has traced the origins of our gospel to say this is not just some subjective, invisible, fuzzy, squishy truth. This is objective, the eternal, invisible, intangible life and joy of God that has existed eternally has entered into history in time and space objective, historical, verifiable truth claims are being made. I love what Stott says, how we desperately need this. We need to know this. This is not just, it's not only a spiritual, invisible experience. He says such an emphasis on the historical Revelation of the invisible and intangible is needed today, not least by scientists who are trained in empirical method. We live in a scientific age trained to touch and feel and examine and test. We need to know that's been done with the gospel. He goes on to say, the radical who regards such Much, excuse me, the radical who regards much in the Gospels as myth. They need it. 
They need to know this is not a myth. This is in a community of people who gathered together and said either he's nuts or he's God. And they concluded he's God. And they gave their lives for him. And they taught their kids. And they became a people. And they spread across the ends of the earth with this message. It's not a myth. And then he goes on and start this quote. He says, and the mystic who becomes preoccupied with the subjective religious experience to the neglect of God's objective self-revelation in Christ. Your faith cannot just be the subjective experience. You will be bouncing off of every wall in this place. It's got to be grounded in the objective truth of God's gospel and it is expounded in the scriptures. So let me read his quote to do him justice without all my interruptions. Such an emphasis on the historical revelation of the invisible and intangible is needed still today. Not least by the scientist trained in empirical method, the radical who regards much in the gospel as myths, and the mystic who becomes preoccupied with his subjective religious experience to the neglect of God's objective self-revelation in Christ. This brings us to our final question. Why do we proclaim the gospel? He says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. That, that in itself is a whole another two or three sermons. But let's just quickly pull out three, three reasons here. First of all, number one, because our fellowship with God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Why do we proclaim? Because we've experienced it. Because we've tasted it. It's not finished. There's a finished product of the perfections and the fullness of joy and life eternal that exists and has always existed. And then there's this historical revelation of how we can enter into that. And when we taste it, just the foretaste, though we struggled all week and we grieved all week, that we can, there's a joy, a deep seeding joy that sustains us in the pain that says, even so, Lord, come, because I've tasted what is coming and it's good. So why would we proclaim it? Why did they proclaim it? Because they have fellowship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what you do when you've tasted it. But He also says, so that others may enter into that fellowship. We proclaim it because we know this is the way God, similar to the way God revealed His invisible and tangible qualities through the incarnation of God taking on flesh. He literally enfleshed Himself. This is such a weak analogy, but I can't help it. This is where my childish mind goes. Do you see the invisible man? Anybody? 
How do you know he's there? Because they wrap something around him. And then you see, oh, there he is. The incarnation is the enfleshing of God to see that eternal life exists and you can know and enter into him by faith in Jesus. And so he's saying that I've experienced that, but he also knows that's the gospel proclamation is similar to the incarnation. That's how eternal life is made visible to others. It's a message. It's invisible. It's intangible. It's eternal. How do they know? We speak it. We explain it. We put flesh and bone on it so people know that's how I can be reconciled with God. We make it manifest to people. And number three, we write these things so that our joy may be complete. So I would sum it this way. We proclaim the gospel because we've experienced the joyful fellowship of God through it. And it becomes our joy to share it with others so that they may come into the same fellowship with us. To the extent that you have experienced the joy of God and the life of God in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of anguish, to the extent that you've tasted that that experience of God that is true and objectively true and historically true, that to the extent that you've experienced subjectively that objective experience, that objective truth, you want other people to know it. You want other people to know it. There's an objective truth that we experience subjectively. And when you've tasted it, You want people to know it. John Stott says this. The Christian message is neither a philosophical speculation, nor a tentative suggestion, nor a modest contribution to religious thought, but a confident affirmation by those who experience and commission have qualified them to make it. Let me work through that. He's reacting to what our world tells us. Our world says, okay, Christianity is a philosophical speculation. Perhaps Jesus gives life. That's fine. That's a good idea. What about these other alternatives? He says, it is not a philosophical speculation. It's also not a tentative suggestion. Hey, you might try Jesus. I'm not trying to offend. But I'm just saying... You might, you might try Jesus. If the others didn't work out for you, try Jesus. No, that's not it. Nor is it a modest contribution to religious thought. Philosophers, theologians sitting back in their ivory towers, writing these books, deep thinking. And let's just say that it's just another contribution to religious thought. No, that's not what Christianity is. It is a confident affirmation by those who have experienced him. And then it is a proclamation by those who have been commissioned by him. 
And we are both if we claim to be in Christ. Have you experienced life? Have you tasted the fullness of joy? You're not there, but have you tasted the first taste of it? The difference that this message leads to in your life? And if so, then you will share it. You will proclaim it. It will make a difference in your life. Father, we ask for your help this morning. Discerning the difference between something that is merely subjective or something that is merely objective. But Lord, in you, the objective became subjective. The truth that life and fullness of joy has existed eternally in the invisible, intangible God took on flesh so that we might hear and see and experience and taste and see the life and the joy that is in God that exists in the future for everyone in Christ. And Lord, I I plead with you to move powerfully in every heart this morning. If you're here this morning and you have never understood this message, you don't have to wait. You don't have to go through some class. It is is up to you to, to talk to God right now in the silence of your own heart and mind and say, God, I hear, I hear what you're saying in the word that you made yourself known through Jesus. And I'm giving it all to Jesus. And I'm believing his death on the cross paid the payment, I, the sin payment I deserve to pay, death. He paid the death for me, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring me to God. God, I want to be reconciled to you because you are life and the fullness of joy forevermore. You can tell him that right now. I believe God. I believe in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And he will receive you into his arms. He will declare you righteous and holy and perfect because he gives you credit for Jesus. He will reconcile you to himself and you will begin to taste the joy of God, the joy of knowing eternal life, the joy of knowing that this is just a glimpse, this is a mere dust, this life of history, this This flesh is temporary, but there's an eternal existence that awaits you and it will affect you. It will give you a steadfast assurance of joy that undergirds pain and suffering in this life that gives hope in grieving. When your body fails, you know this is not the end. I've got a whole existence awaiting me when Christ returns. I pray that you know that today, either for the first time or you're reminded again. And may we praise God for the resurrection that is ours in Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, 
please visit us online at norseverychurch.org.